This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Right now we're going to have a couple of guys who are walking around uh, who's going to have some Bibles in their hands. So if you need a Bible, um, could you do me a favor and just flag one of those guys down um, and let them know you need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take that Bible home and uh, it's yours now. If you do have a Bible and you just forgot it today, um, then uh, you can borrow that. Just leave it on the seat and we will make sure to take care of it. If you're going to uh, Turn in your own Bibles to the Bible that you are being provided or on your phone or whatever. We want you to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, we, we love the Bible. We think that it is uh, important for us to teach from it, to hear God's Word through it. And so turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Today we're going to be studying verse 31 through 52. While you're turning there, I just want to make a couple of very quick announcements. One is this. We um, don't bombard your phone with text, but once in a while we want to send out text messages that give the announcements on top of what's on Facebook and on the city. So make sure if you're not a part of this textbook uh, of this texting list, please do that and, and text in. We want to keep in touch with you as best as we can on things that are taking place in the church. Um, if you're not a part of an RC yet, our redemption communities are the lifeblood of of who we are in community and how we relate to one another. There's, uh, there's nine of them that are taking place. We're going to soon be opening more. Um, so make sure uh, to uh, get that information. The last thing I want to announce is we are going to, to really be going into this year a emphasis on prayer and just corporate prayer and worship. And so we're making more opportunities um, for us to pray together. So on August 30th, we're going to spend a couple hours in prayer. At 6 p.m., we're going to have a night of worship and prayer. We're going to have all the elders here laying hands and praying for people. We're going to have some music and just a time for us to worship and pray. I would encourage all of you to make this a, a priority, um, and we just uh, we would love for you to come to that night. Um, one of the things that we are wanting to do through this series is for us to see what is it that, that God is trying to speak to us and, and reveal to us and show us through his word. There's, there's a real danger in how uh, many of us read scripture. Uh, many of us will approach scripture trying to find something to fit into a situation of our lives. God, this is what's going on and what I need is, is you to, to come and, and fit into that situation and, and I need you to speak to me about that. And what ends up happening is as we approach scripture, we're trying to carve away the things we don't want to hear from God and we're trying to make something fit into what it is that we're facing. Now listen, I know that God speaks to present situations and I think you're going to see today, but what he wants to do through his word is he wants to speak to your heart. He wants to reveal himself to you and what we need is to hear from him. The word greatness, the word greatness is one in which many of us have heard, and it's a common word, but just because it's 
common um, doesn't mean we all share the same definition of that word. What is great to you and what is great to me may be completely different. What I dream of as far as greatness and what you dream of as far as greatness will be different things. And so what we have to do as we are approaching Scripture is, is say, Lord, we want to see, we want to hear, we want to know what is greatness according to your word. I think the greatest lie ever told was rooted in this idea that God does not want us to be like him. You remember the serpent speaking to Eve in the garden as she's at the tree and he's saying to her, God doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to bite into that fruit. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be able to determine what is good and evil. But if you bite into this, your eyes will be open and you'll be able to determine what is good and evil. I want you to notice this, that the lie here was that she was going to be able or he, or they were going to be able to ascend to being equal with God. Never mind that scripture says that they were created in the image and the likeness of God. The lie speaks to them believing that they were not equal with God. And so what they wanted to do was like Satan, they wanted to ascend to equality with God. That lie has penetrated creation so deeply that we are all on this continual conquest to ascend. We want to ascend to power. We want to ascend to privilege. We want to ascend to greatness. We want to ascend to be equal with God. But when we use this idea of we can ascend to equality, notice that we don't say, or the enemy doesn't say, you could be greater than God. He's saying you can ascend to equality with God. You could be like God. There's a subtle lie even within that. It's not that we want to be equal with God even. We want to determine we want to determine what is good and evil. We want to be the ones who rule and reign and, and, and live out our lives the way we want. And pride, Scripture says, is the root of all evil. That desire to ascend is the root of division, power struggles, discrimination, abuse, brokenness, all throughout history, the desire for us to ascend has what has eroded all of culture. We live in a culture that is representing that same line that has penetrated all of history. So what do we have? We have people fighting for power. People fighting for privilege. 
And in this battle, in which we call a battle for equality, it's actually a battle for power. We call it a battle for equality, and it sounds prettier, but it's actually a battle for power. And here's what I mean by that. Human systems make claims that they can make the world right, but the truth is they can only succeed in bringing in a different set of humans into power. We see this every year as, as people begin, or, or every few years as people begin to candidate for their position in power in our government. What are they saying? I can do it better than them. I can do it. Our party can do it better than them. And so they start to campaign against each other. We can make all the brokenness in this world right. And it's amazing. Every time one of those parties or one of those candidates ascends into power by the end of their term, They've screwed things up worse. Doesn't matter what party gets in. Doesn't matter what person gets in. When someone gets into that position of power, all of a sudden we see every evil, we see every brokenness, we see that all we did was transfer evil power from one party to another party. The only success we have in this fight for power is to transfer power from one set of humans to another set of humans. There's some, some quotes that we have probably heard. Byron Action, in his writings to a bishop, said, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Another quote, absolute power corrupts the best of natures. You see, whenever we see a party, a people, a minority take over power, here's what we end up seeing. The sinfulness, the wickedness, and the brokenness. And what do we do? If I was in power, it would be better. If I had what they had, I could fix this. There is a real belief in us that if we ascended to that place of power, we could fix and make right all the things. How do I know that? None of us would want maybe to take that position, but how do I know that? Because we all have criticisms and critiques of how they should do it. All of us. We all have ways and beliefs and complaints all want this underlying prideful thing in us we just want equality this is why when Jesus comes on the scene nobody knew what this guy was about 
He's saying he's the Messiah, and they've been longing and waiting for this Messiah and this king to come. And here's the reason why they've been waiting and longing for this Messiah and king to come. Because they want him to come in power, and they want him to overthrow the powers that are in this world. And they want him to ascend to a position of power and authority. And what? They want to ascend to that position. They've been the minority. They've been the ones on the outskirts. They've been the ones persecuted. And what they want is a Messiah to bring them into positions of power. With all that in mind, let's stand together. And let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 52. And as we are re- as I'm reading today, let's remember this is... God's word, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, again he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, We, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want for me to do? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drank? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized? And they said, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the the baptism in which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who consider rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever be the greatest amongst you be a servant, and whoever be first amongst you be a slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and called him. They called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want for me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Where we find the beginning section of this 
is Jesus is for the third time, the third time he's telling his disciples that he's going to be persecuted, spit on, flogged, beaten. He's going to die this horrible death on the cross. They don't understand the cross. They don't understand why this Messiah who's going to come in in power and overthrow the powers to be and with them, with him, they're going to ascend to this position of power. Why would he go to the cross? Why don't they understand the cross? Well, I think it's, it's a good question to ask of them. But I also think we as modern Christians have a very narrow view of the cross. I think they didn't understand the cross because they, like us, think the cross is limited to the forgiveness of sins. Now listen, believe me, the cross is the power of God. It can forgive us of sins. I'm not saying that the cross is not forgiveness of sin. I'm saying it's much more than just the forgiveness of sins. This is a massive benefit. Yes, we have been forgiven. Christ has paid the work for us, has been done. But the cross is much more than that. You see, the cross accomplished much more than the forgiveness of sins. It turned the world's ideas of power and glory upside down and inside out. God's way of standing worldly powers and authorities on its head was not coming in with power and authority and, and coming in and overthrowing the government with the kind of power that governments overthrow each other. It was by showing and demonstrating what real power actually is. See, the disciples were thinking this way. They thought they were going to ascend to greatness and they were going to be a part of greatness. And their definition of greatness was different than Jesus's. And when he starts talking to them about the cross for the third time, once again, we see the disciples just do not understand. Why is this? Well, what we see is James and John they misunderstood. And then in the next story, James and John and the disciples are going to be contrasted with a blind man. What we're going to look at over these next two stories is we're going to see the disciples and a blind man being contrasted. Mark in the way of him writing this, inspired by the Spirit, does a beautiful job at taking these two stories and putting them right next to each other as a contrast. And we're going to see those contrasts. Here's what happens with James and John. And I want you to notice this because in the next story you're going to see these similarities and contrasts. James and John misunderstood why Jesus had came. And so on their way 
They misunderstood the cross just like many of us do because here's what the cross does. The cross calls into question all human pride and glory. But what they did is they come to Jesus, notice this, and they ask him, Jesus, hey, we want you to give us whatever we want. Whatever we ask you, we want you to give it to us. Notice Jesus doesn't say, okay. <laughs> he says, well, what is it that you want? I mean, have you, as a parent, ever had that kind of approach from your child? You know, right? First, I want to know what you're asking, right? And then I will uh, we'll talk about that. What, what are you asking? And what they were asking was for a position, for a seat of greatness. They said to him, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. Now, I'm not sure which one wanted to sit at the right and which one wanted to sit at the left. They just wanted, as brothers, to be on the right and left hand of God, Jesus, in his kingdom. So they come and ask him. What Jesus says is extremely interesting. He says, look, you don't even know what you're asking. Notice he doesn't rebuke them for asking. He uses this as an opportunity for teaching. Jesus Tells him, you don't know what you're asking. He said, unless you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, unless you're baptized into what I'm going to be baptized into. And they say, we can do that. We can do that. And he responds to them by basically saying this, yes, you should and you will serve and suffer and sacrifice. You will drink the cup that is, needs to be drank. And you will be baptized into that baptism of suffering. And you will do those things. Notice he's saying you will serve, you will suffer, you will sacrifice. But the seats at my right and left are not mine to give away. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. They're not mine to give away. Only my father has already prepared who will seat at my right and my left. Now, it doesn't say how James and John respond. It just shows because many of us can go, man, the, the nerve of James and John. But he brings the rest of the disciples in. They were just jealous. They, they, they didn't ask, right? They start going, why would they get there first? And they're asking and they start fighting. Man, look at them trying to rise the power. And inside of them, when you start seeing somebody else try to rise the power, it immediately starts rising something in you. I sh they need to. Jerks. Right? What do the disciples do? They start getting frustrated and angry. And Jesus responds to them. And I, I want you to notice because many of us can take this and say, Jesus is rebuking them for wanting power and greatness. 
He's rebuking them for wanting power and greatness. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting power and greatness. He redefines what greatness is. Sure, you should want power and greatness, but you don't know what power and greatness is. So he starts telling them about what actual greatness is. That if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to learn to be a servant. And if you want to have this position of power, you've got to learn to be a slave. He's saying, yeah, go after power and greatness, but power and greatness is service, sacrifice and the giving of your life away. You see what he does? He doesn't tell them, don't go after power and greatness. He says, what you think is power and greatness is not power and greatness. And he redefines the very nature of it. This part is extremely hard for people to understand because in their minds, right, power and greatness is something that they want to pursue. And it's not that you shouldn't pursue power and greatness. What Jesus is saying is you're actually pursuing the wrong thing. You're actually pursuing death and destruction and pride. You're not pursuing power and greatness. But if you want to pursue power and greatness, be a servant. And then he says something extremely interesting that we'll address at the end. He says, but, notice this in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now after that exchange, the disciples and Jesus are walking and crowds are there with them. And there is a blind man named Bartimaeus. Jesus is walking by and Bartimaeus is screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd and the people are saying, be quiet. Be quiet. Shh. Jesus doesn't have time for you. The crowds are there. People are flogging. Jesus is ascending to this place of kingdom greatness, right? He's going to Jerusalem, and they think, man, we're going to be ascending with him in power. He is on the march towards what they think is the overthrow of the government. But Jesus keeps telling them, I'm going to die. So this king doesn't have time for beggars and blind people. Screaming, son of David, have mercy on me. And they're like, shh. And then he screams louder. I love that. You can tell me to be quiet. It just means I need to raise the volume a little bit. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, the Bible says, stops. And he calls the blind man, Bartimaeus, to come to him. And notice the change in the heart of the crowd. You notice the change in the heart of the crowd? One minute they're telling him to be quiet, and the next time they're like, hey, rejoice. 
Jesus is calling you. Come on. We knew he wanted to see you. You know, like they're so supportive all of a sudden. What does he do? He throws off his garment, his begging clothes. He runs with joy. He goes with joy to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus asks Bartimaeus the same exact question he asks his disciples. What is it you want me to do for you? You notice that? Jesus asks his disciples, what is it you want me to do for you? And they say, I want power. I want your right hand and I want your left hand. And he asks a blind man, what is it I can do for you? And he cries out for mercy and he cries out for sight. What does Jesus do? He restores him. He heals him. And right after he heals him, the man follows him. These two contrasting stories are put close to each other for us to see the differences between James and John and the disciples and a blind beggar. James and John came to Jesus saying, do, a, do for us whatever we ask. They didn't want his will. They didn't want his mercy. They didn't want him to do what they said is, do for us whatever we ask. But the blind man is calling out, crying out for mercy. They came feeling like they were deserving of that position. This man knows he is not deserving of anything. He's crying out for mercy. James and John are asking for what they want. The blind man is asking for mercy. I hope you can see what ends up happening to James and John. James and John started with an exalted position and by the end of the story ended up humble. The blind man started in a humble position and by the end of the story ended up in what? An exalted position. God gives grace to the proud. He exalt God gives God gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. What we see in this is that in his humility, he starts begging for mercy and he ends up in a position of exaltation being set in front of the crowd as an example in which you should follow. You see, Mark puts this stark contrast between the disciples and this blind man. And here's the reason why. Because in all of their requests, when Jesus says, what is it that you want? In all their requests, they're asking for power, prestige, and glory. But here's this blind man who is crying out for his eyes to be open. And he wants healing. And what Jesus is trying to show us in the contrast of these stories is that these disciples needed to be asking for their eyes to be open, for they needed a mercy. They needed God to move in their lives in this way rather than trying to ascend to a position of prestige and power and glory. 
See, they missed what the Messiah had actually come to do. Every time Jesus reveals it to them, they're missing it. But here is a blind man calling Jesus son of David. Son of David. You're the Messiah. Have mercy on me. The danger in preaching a message like this is that I would get it wrong. And in me getting it wrong, I would look to you and say, the point of this text is all of us in this room need to be more humble and we need to serve. (laughs) You're like, that's the obvious. That's exactly what this text is saying. It's an implication of the text. But it's not the point of it. We need to take a moment and ponder because in this text, Jesus is much, much more than just an example for how we should live our lives. Jesus is not just saying to us, you should serve, you should be humble, you should be this way. This is not just an example for us, but we should take a moment and ponder and and wait just a minute and see that Jesus is not just an example in this text. He is saying something extremely powerful. And what he's telling us is this. That Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve us and to be a ransom for many. He didn't come because he was trying to raise up a radical group of disciples who would live humble and stir up a revolution. He was not trying to raise up a radical group of disciples who would stir up a revolution. This Jesus is telling his disciples that he came into the world to serve them. That what they needed was not to go and serve. They needed someone to serve them. This is not about us being served, being servants. This is about us being served by a gracious and loving God. He is saying to them, yes, you will drink of this cup. Yes, you will be baptized. Yes, you will serve others. But what you really need is not to go out and really try hard to be humble and serve others. What you need is me to be your servant. I have not come to be served, Jesus says. I've come to serve you. I've come to do the work for you. That the cross that I have come to die upon, the work that I have come to do, is being done for them. And all they can think about is how they can ascend. It's a humbling posture to see the Messiah say what you really need is to be served. See, Jesus would be lifted up. 
Jesus would ascend up a mountain. And he would have two at his right and at his left, but it was thieves. He would ascend up a mountain, but he would sit and hang on a cross. His ascent was not what they thought it would be. And those on his right and left were not those who they thought it would be. This Jesus came to do the work for them. And what they want is to be at the right and the left. And I hope that you can hear me on this. Is that Ephesians shows us, Ephesians chapter 1, and I want you to hear this. Verse 18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope in which you are called. That there are, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions above every name that is named not only in the age to come but in this age and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is in his body the fullness of him who fills all things that Christ's work in which he did and where he ascended and seated at his right and left were thieves and their pursuit of the right hand and the left hand of Jesus and he says only my father can give that position I hope that you can see that what they were after was Jesus's position the right hand is where Jesus sits. This is the place in which he ascends and sits at the right hand of God. And in that place, all things come back into proper alignment with Christ as the head. All things come back into proper alignment and at his feet is where we find hope, restoration, joy, and life. What we need, if we're really going to learn what it means to serve, if we're really going to learn what it means to sacrifice, if we're really going to learn what it means to be great, you're not going to be able to do it without seeing how deeply you have been served and loved by the greatest of all. When you see Christ, like Paul prays, and the work that he has accomplished, a natural outflow of a follower of Christ is to respond to the way they've been served by serving others. We should desire to give power away. It's amazing to me how what we're pursuing is power and privilege when the model that we see in Christ and the way that we should live as his followers is by laying down that 
position of power and privilege and giving our lives sacrificially to others. My question to you today is this. In light of Christ's in light of how Christ has served you, how are you serving others? In light of how Christ has served you, how are you serving others? In light of how Jesus didn't consider it robbery to, to be equal with man and to die for us, in light of how Christ humbled himself for us, how are we living humbly in this world? You see, if we're going to fight for anything, let's not fight for power and privilege. Let's fight for humility because we're already naturally proud. If we're going to fight for anything, let's not fight for position. Because we already naturally want to cling to our privileges. Let's fight for humility. Let's fight for sacrifice. Let's fight for the things that go against the very nature of who we are. And let's remember... That it is that. It is that kind of life that only can be lived when your eyes are open to how much God in Christ has served you and loved you. Let's pray, church. Lord, I... I stand here completely broken to pieces by a message like this. I am the, the least of those in this room when it comes to trying to ascend and trying to gain privilege and power. God, I have to fight that urge over and over and over again. It seems to just be nature for me to try and ascend. But God, I'm asking that as you reveal the cross to us, that you would not rebuke greatness and power, but that you would redefine it in our hearts and minds. That we would be overwhelmed as a people when we see someone who is serving. When we see someone who is loving, when we see someone who is giving their lives away, when we see someone who is living in obscurity and in sacrifice 
when we see others who are living in response to how you have served and loved them, we see this great joy in giving our lives away. And giving our possessions away. Lord, I'm praying today, would you make us a small church? And I'm not just talking about the number of people that come here. That's not what I'm asking for, God. But I'm asking that we as a church would not pursue positions of popularity and fame. But God, we would pursue to give our lives away. And if you're going to exalt that in front of the world around us, and if people are going to know us by anything, God, I pray that they know us by our love, that they know us by our sacrifice, they know us by humility, and that when asked, that all we can say is I'm only doing what is a response to how Christ has so perfectly served me. Father, I pray that today we would not see this as a practical message in order for us to go out and try harder to serve. But God, what I'm asking for is that as we come to this table, we would be wrecked by how you humbled yourself for us. And that we would live in such pride and arrogance when you, the God of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who holds true power and true authority, the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, you showed us true greatness and you knew what we needed was not just an example. We needed you to serve us. We needed you to come and go to the cross. We needed you to come and die the death we should have died we needed you to pay the price that only we could pay that only you could pay you we needed ransom we were slaves to our ascent to greatness we were slaves to our sin and pride we were slaves but you purchased us you paid our ransom and through your great humility we find the freedom of living Humbly, you've redefined greatness. You didn't just forgive us. You redefined greatness. You freed us from the slavery of being our own gods and our own masters. And you brought us back into right relationship with you. So today as we come to the table, church, I pray that you would be overwhelmed as you drink of this cup and eat of this body of how much Christ loves you, how much God loves you, how much he humbled himself, that you would be overwhelmed by true greatness and your only response would be to accept this great act of mercy, that we would be like the blind man Son of David, have mercy on me. Open my eyes so I can see. Let me see what true greatness is. Let me see what humility is. Let me walk by the 
Spirit, I need your help. Let's come as beggars. Let's come as humble servants crying out for mercy. Knowing this, that as we drink of this cup, as we eat of this bread, we are being served. We are being loved. Church, the tables are open. And the only response to this kind of mercy is worship and following. So let's come. Let's partake. Let's worship. Let's repent. Let's respond.